Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Wall Street piano man Nico Kutulis. But first of all, let's talk about releasing vinyl. There's a lot of artists and bands that see vinyl as a special way of making their art available to a lot of people. And perhaps the understanding of what it takes to actually release a vinyl record is maybe not so well understood. So let me just hip you to nine things that you have to think about when it comes to releasing vinyl. The very first thing is the production timeline. Production takes a long time, anywhere from 10 to 16 weeks. So you have to figure that it's going to take at least that long to get your vinyl produced. That's because there's not a lot of places that do it. And all of them are going 24 hours a day, 24-7, and they're backed up with work because everybody and their brother wants to release vinyl right now, as do the major record labels and indie record labels. So there's actually a big demand for vinyl. It means that it's going to take you a long time to actually get it produced. The second thing is you need a separate master. Now, you're probably going to make a CD master, and that may or may not work as your vinyl master. One of the reasons why it won't work is something we're coming to in a little bit, which is sequencing. But a big thing is a CD master is usually pretty hot, and that probably won't work for your vinyl master. It'll be too hot, and especially if there's a lot of low end, the chances are that you may get a lot of skips because there's so much bottom end going on and it's just too hot, so it won't sound that good. So usually there's a second master where the level's turned down and maybe the bass is controlled a little bit better, so it's a good listening experience for the buyer of the disc. The third thing is artwork. Just because you have artwork for a CD, it doesn't necessarily mean it's transferable onto a vinyl album. And the reason why is it's a big piece of cardboard that we're looking at. And things that will get lost on a CD won't get lost when you're looking at a big graphic that's blown up. So you have to take a lot of care in doing this. The other thing is people will actually buy, they always have done this, they'll buy vinyl on the basis of what the cover looks like. So if you have a particularly intriguing cover, you may get sales just off that alone. So it's worth it to put some time and effort and even some money into getting a great cover. The fourth thing is a UPC code. Now, UPC code is something that you need that gets scanned during a sale at the retail outlet. This has to be different than the one on your CD. So chances are if you're doing vinyl, you're probably doing CD as well, but you need a separate UPC code and the cover art has to be designed around it. So it's not something that you can just put on later. It's something that you have to hand to your designer before he or she even starts. Number five is sequencing. Now, when we think of sequencing, it doesn't necessarily matter in these days of digital distribution where we're just talking about CDs for the most part. But in an album, especially on a CD, you know that the sequence of songs really makes a big difference. And it's even more so when it comes to a piece of vinyl. 
the reason why there are two sides. So basically you need two different masters. You need one for side A and another one for side B. And the sequences, of course, have to be well thought out because you have two opening cuts and two closing cuts as opposed to one of each on just a CD. So this takes a lot of thought and it's more than just slapping a song order together. Number six, this is one that's overlooked frequently, is you have to pay for the shipping of your records. So you may get a price for pressing a thousand pieces of vinyl, five thousand pieces, ten thousand pieces, whatever it might be. But don't forget, shipping is extra and it could be pretty substantial because vinyl is heavy. Which brings us to number seven, which is storage. When you get your vinyl back, you have a lot of boxes. And guess what? They have to be stored somewhere. You have to worry about the climate because if you store it in your garage and it gets hot during the summer and those discs warp, guess what? They're no good. And in the winter, consequently, you might have the same problem where they'll get too cold and they'll get brittle. So you have to store those discs in a climate-controlled environment. Number eight is a distributor. The distributor is really important because those pieces of vinyl cost you a bunch of dough. You want to get that money back. And unless you're positive that you can actually make that money on gigs, then what you're going to do is find a distributor to actually get it in whatever retail stores there are. And there's plenty of mom and pop stores. Now, brings us to number nine, which is the payment. You can get them in the stores, but chances are it's going to take a long time to get paid. You're basically putting them there on consignment. So it may take you a year, it may take you two years to see that money, and by the time it gets to two years, you may be getting pennies on the dollar because the retailer might have put it in the clearance bin by that time. So this is not a money-making strategy unless you're going to sell these at gigs and you're pretty confident that whatever you order, you can sell. That's usually why orders of 500 or 1,000 at the most are pretty prudent unless you have a big following and you're absolutely sure that you can get rid of everything that you order. So those are the nine things to remember when you're releasing vinyl. And should you overlook any of them, it could really spell disaster for your project. <laughs> If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, will be available on August 7th. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll be able to find the book on Amazon and most other online retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Let's talk about audio over Ethernet. I thought I knew a little bit about this, and I was surprised when a friend called me earlier this week and asked me some questions, and I had no idea. Let's do an overview of audio over Ethernet, and this is a big deal anymore, especially if you're in live sound, because basically everything is connecting by an Ethernet cable. So instead of the snakes that we used to see, we're just seeing Ethernet cables anymore, and it's actually a good thing. Audio over Ethernet is multi-channel audio over Cat5 or Cat6 Ethernet cable. And it's usually at 100 megabits per second, and you get 32 to 64 channels at 48 kilohertz resolution. So this is pretty cool. Works fine. But then we get into the fact that there are a number of standards. Dante, for instance, is a proprietary standard for audio over Ethernet. This is used by a lot of different companies. Personas is the one that comes to mind, but there's a bunch of them. 
And there's another one called AES-67. This is an open standard that's compatible with Dante, used mostly for broadcast. Now, again, what they're doing is just shipping audio around the plant. And with Dante, usually you're just shipping audio around the PA system, basically. Both Dante and AES-67 use standard switches, which is cool. It makes it relatively inexpensive to install. Another one is called AVB, which is audio-video bridging. This is supported by L Acoustics, Meyer Sound, D&B, and Avid. And what it basically is, is audio over Ethernet, but with very precise timing. And the precise timing is so you could add video to it. So that's a big deal, actually. It doesn't mean it's actually supporting video within that protocol. You're not shooting video down the line with the audio, but you're shooting timing information so it syncs up. There's also a proprietary system from QSC, and it's what they call QSYS. This uses the very popular Cisco backbone, and you find this in installed systems in arenas and stadiums and airports and places like that. Again, it's mostly for shipping audio around, but it has a very large installed base in installed reinforcement systems. Now, you probably have heard all of these, and hopefully you've even used some of them, but What you may not have heard of, and this was news to me until recently, is a system called HD Base T. HD Base, B A S E, with a capital T after it. And this is a consumer level, and actually it's more than that, but it's aimed mostly at consumers. And it differs from the others because not only does it carry audio, but also 4K video, power, and USB. So there's a lot going on in this Ethernet cable. It's going to replace HDMI. So HDMI so far has been the big deal for simplifying interconnection between audio and video devices, mostly video devices. And we see this in all of our latest home gear now. But starting next year, you may not see as much as HDMI and see more of this HD base T. You're also going to see this in automobiles. Yeah, there's a big push to put HD base T into autos because it reduces wiring by a lot. Now, if you think about the autonomous car, which that's coming very quickly, there's a lot of information that's actually being spread around this car. And it's up to 4,000 gigs a day on a self-driving car. And that's because there's a combination of radar, sonar, cameras, GPS, LIDAR, and audio. All together, there's a lot of information going back and forth. And if they all used separate wires in order to do that, it would be a mess and it would add so much extra weight. And that's why HD base T is so important, especially in this particular area. It takes care of all of that and more. So just a quick overview of what I just talked about. Dante is just for audio, multi-channel audio. AVB is audio plus timing info, and the timing info is mostly used time to video, synchronized to video. And HD base T is audio plus video plus USB plus power. And you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Nico Kutulis had a dream job as a financial analyst at Morgan Stanley on Wall Street, and he's leaving it for an even better dream as a musical artist. Totally through social media, Nico's piano playing has racked up more than 1.2 million streams a month from more than 300,000 users on Spotify. And he's been supported on social media by the Chainsmokers, Kigo, Love, and many other prominent A-list artists. 
Nico also produces electronic dance music and has received 15 label offers to release his first single. Now just imagine he's done all this while working the intense hours of investment banking. Now Nico has finalized his first round of funding from outside investors as he quits his Wall Street job and heads full-time into music. We spoke via Skype from his home in New Jersey. Most people, when they start down the career path that you did, don't change from it. So tell me, how did that happen? Yeah, I think music has always been a passion in my life, and I've been playing since the age of two. And it's always something that I've seen as a passion of mine, and I never knew if it really turned into something that I want to take in the direction of a career, just because when I was growing up, I had a bunch of different interests. Uh, I loved school. I played basketball, and I never really specialized in anything. Uh, and as time has gone on and technology and social media have risen, there's tremendous opportunity for anyone to become a musician today to get their music heard and to grow a following. And during my time as a first-year analyst at Morgan Stanley, I said to myself, now is the time to really start posting music and being consistent. And out of nowhere, I started getting contacted by playlist curators saying, I'd like to add your music to my playlist on Spotify. And given the rise of Spotify, it's also given me a tremendous opportunity to reach out to fans and to grow an audience to the point now where I have a royalty stream where it almost makes sense. Why don't I take this full time and see where I can take it? And given it's been my dream since a child, now is a chance to do it. Let's talk about Morgan Stanley for a second, because I was always under the impression that especially someone that's young in the business is working like these crazy hours and doesn't have the time to do anything else. So how did it work for you? Yeah. So I read a couple of books about being efficient on time. The four hour work week by Tim Ferriss was one of them. And it's, it is very difficult. It's a, it's a tough job. It's very demanding, but it's also very rewarding. I get to work with some of the best professionals in the industry and I have great mentors that have kind of taught me how to allocate my time appropriately. So it is, it is a bit crazy and hectic. I put a lot of time in during the weekends, uh, and music just inspires me, so I, it just brings me more energy to do it. The hours are tough, though, sometimes, and there's times where I don't get to everything I want, and that's kind of why now I'm doing this full-time uh, come July. Well, cool. We're going to get to that in a second, but before, tell me what an analyst does. What's your job there? So as an analyst uh, at Morgan Stanley, we're basically involved in helping companies raise money to perform different types of activities. So I can give you an example. Let's say that there's a restaurant chain that wants to open up 3,000 restaurants in the United States. So they come to Morgan Stanley and say, hey, is there a way that we can finance this? Also meaning, can we get money? Um, and we sit as an intermediary between the company and investors. So basically what we can do is, is we can, based on how well the company's performed, we can say, we think it's possible for you guys to raise money through a loan or bonds or potentially by bringing your company public on the stock market. Mm -hmm. So as an analyst, we're performing tons of Excel. We're creating PowerPoints. We're working to figure out the best way to help our clients. And also, there's tons of organizational involved. You're printing presentations. You're delivering them. You're making sure there's no mistakes. Uh, there's sometimes times where you know, you have to be very, very careful because one decimal point can mean a huge difference. 
So that's something that's really good for music as well because when I'm playing now, yeah, I really have to force myself when I'm playing the piano to focus on every single note. And every single note has a value to it that you have to take into account as a musician. I watched your video, your YouTube video of you playing out, I guess it was in Manhattan someplace. Yeah. What I noticed was you have a natural flair that a lot of keyboard players don't have where they're, they're pretty much into their instrument and their head down and everything. But that's not you. You have a showman's <laughs> flair, which is very cool, and plenty of technique to go along with it, which is I, I really love. That's great. Again, especially in the world we live in today, there's a lack of technique, and it's something that I speak with my peers all the time about that we lament the fact that there are no good players anymore, or there's fewer of them, let's put it like that, because it's just too easy not to be and still make music. Right, yeah. I was blessed that my parents, so I started playing at two on a child keyboard, and then I think my parents recognized that I loved for music. I actually loved to dance as a child too. So they brought me to a teacher from the age of six all the way up until 15. I was taking lessons. But the beauty about all of this was that my teacher was very open-minded and open-minded to me playing different types of pieces. So while I was still playing classical music, I was being exposed to Christian gospel, rap music on the piano, pop music, new age, basically anything you can imagine at that in those ages, that's when your mind really starts to form. So when you have the kind of technique and everything behind piano from a, an instructor, and at the same time, your mind can expand and see different types of genres. I think that's what gave me my flair as well as my, my Greek heritage. I was performing as a Greek dancer since the age of six years old. And my parents are both instructors. So you, you get that and you kind of get the Greek culture, everything that comes together. And then you kind of have the flair. And I, I love to perform. I, it invigorates me. And I love seeing and creating a reaction from the audience. Tell me about your music then when you started to create how did that work? And then the follow-up is, how are you found? Because I know you said that there were some people that wanted to put you on their playlists and everything, and, and I see that there's some rather famous, I hate to use that word, but prestigious performers that spotted your music and seemed like helped you along. So uh, I'm just curious, was it a lucky break that someone put it on your playlist? I think it's all come down to consistency and putting out work uh, on a monthly basis. And what my strategy was behind it is I have a bunch of original music I haven't even released yet on the piano, which I'm ecstatic about because I think it's really a culmination of the music I've written over the, my lifetime. I currently just focus on piano covers now. So the way I do it is I'll record through my Yamaha and then I'll mix and master it to a degree. But now I kind of basically have the same plugin. So there's not much work to do there. And then I'll use a distributor called SoundDrop to release these piano covers to all the streaming services, Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer. And what I'll also do is I'll post on Instagram, I'll post on Twitter, I'll post on Facebook, I'll post on YouTube. And by posting through all these mediums, and, and this is what I was saying earlier about how important it is with the rise of social media and these streaming services, as an artist, you can get discovered. So recently, the Chainsmokers had saw my video on Twitter and they reposted it on their Instagram story, their label Disruptor Records reposted it on Twitter, they reposted it on Twitter. On YouTube, all of a sudden, I actually was in a meeting and I came out of the meeting and someone had said to me, hey, you're famous, you're on this, I'm like, what? What just, what just happened? And 
all of a sudden I was getting comments and emails from fans saying, this is your music's great. You've inspired me to play again. Uh, and it's a really good feeling. And that's what I really enjoy about being an artist is that you can connect with so many people from all walks of life, from people that live in Africa to Asia to the Philippines. I see where you're raising money so you could do this full time. What's the story behind that? So I think the way I look at things, given my background and my education at Johns Hopkins and while working for Morgan Stanley, I think by giving companies and giving people money to put to work, you give them opportunities to do things they typically wouldn't be able to do. So the vocalist that costs a little bit more money, that has a better vocal, maybe more connections, that could be the one song that takes you from 10,000 listeners to a million listeners. So my thought process behind raising money is that you can create better content, you can distribute your content, and you can put more money into marketing. So the combination of those three is what could allow an artist for, to go from maybe a 100,000 follower artist on Spotify to all of a sudden you're on their main playlists, you're getting contacted by major labels. So that's kind of the thought process behind raising money. Can you tell me what the deal is? What are you promising investors? So there's a couple of different ways that the deal can work out and the way you could structure a type of deal like this. And I think this is kind of something new. I, I know there are some firms out there that do invest in musicians, but a lot of times I don't know how many musicians have the business backstory to kind of do it themselves. And I think if they can, they can perform the same type of things a label would at a better financial opportunity for them. So what you can promise investors is you could do it a couple different ways. You can say, hey, I make $1,000 on royalties a month and I'd like a loan for $50,000 and I'll pay you back 20% of my revenue. And then once you get paid back your loan, you can collect 10% of my streaming royalties for the next five years. That's one example of a way to do it. Now, another way could be, I'd like to take a 30% stake in your music career. So I'll have equity in all your royalties, in anything you make, but it'll be after you deduct all your expenses. So if you think about it as an artist, you have streaming royalties that you'll collect. You'll have performances, you'll have licensing opportunities, merchandising. Maybe you make an agreement with an investor that will say, hey, I'll give you $100,000. And from there, at some point in the future, it becomes profit sharing. So let's say you make it big, the investor will collect a certain amount of profits. And let's say that you sell your royalties one day, that investor will collect the percentage that was allocated when you did the transaction in the first place. So those are two different types of ways artists today can do it. And there's obviously a lot of complexity to it. And it takes a lot of learning. It took me about six months to really figure this all out how this would even work. Um, but I think it's a cool opportunity because you can forego going and signing with a label that typically will give you, as you know, in advance, and you have to pay that back in full. And as an artist, sometimes you could take that money, hire the right people, hire the right marketing agency for a fraction of the cost of what a label could give you. Well, for that matter, you can go to label services and any of the, the major labels and hire whatever you need directly from them anymore. It costs a lot, but if you want a major label without any of the um, liabilities of being signed to a, a major, it's possible. Exactly. That wasn't the case a decade ago. This is relatively new that all this came about, but nonetheless, it's possible now. So there's a way to do it. There's an, another way to do it. There is. 
That's very cool. There are two things that you said there that make me think that you're going to succeed with this, where others try something similar and fail. And there's a lot of, of artists that think about this, obviously, but they don't have the wherewithal to carry it through. One of the things is you're allocating money for marketing, and that's one of the downfalls I usually see where people will raise money or they'll either get some money themselves or however they accumulate it, and they spend it on recording and they spend it on everything but marketing, and they kind of forget that, which is really important, obviously. And then the other thing is you're thinking about how you can get the money back to the investor and what's the benefits for the investor. And of course, that's a business you're in your day job, right? Yeah. Most musicians that I know or artists that I know will try to raise money and an investor will say, well, what's in it for me? And they go, ah, uh. <laughs> they don't have a clue in how exactly. to do that. So yeah. that's why you're kind of ahead of the game on this. And I think a lot of the time, some artists may not know, but I think managers need to know. And I think managers that can find successful artists and, and can raise the money for them and get them favorable terms will end up being the future of the best managers going forward for the next 10 years. The barriers are broken down completely. We're in a completely different era than it was 10 years ago. So I think that you know maybe the artists don't need to know, but the managers, if they could really get a grasp on how this works. Uh, but it's very difficult to return money to your investor depending on the project. Like I do a lot of cover songs, so those are going to get listens. People listen to cover tracks all the time. There's playlists for them. Original music is much harder to see a return because you really just don't know. Then again, the problem with that is there's no publishing. Publishing is the one place in music, it's always been that way and it still is, where it's a valuable piece of intellectual property. And yep. the value is continuing to grow on that. I have some publisher friends and when we get together, we're all kind of amazed the prices that catalogs are going for. They're not going for less. They're going for more. When you see what the multiples are, you go, wow. That's good for the industry and for artists. Well, if you write your own music, yeah. And if you're able to keep control of your publishing, and again, that's one of those things that artists kind of vague on sometimes. More and more, they know what's going on with that, but it's still one of those deep, dark mysteries of the business that I think most artists don't delve into as much as they should, at least right in the beginning, they don't. Eventually, when you find out, well, there's a, an income stream there, then it's like, oh, yeah, I better learn about this. What's your plans for the future? So you're doing covers now, and that's going well for you, but what's the future here? I, I know you must have some goals. Knowing you, you probably have a five-year plan. There is a plan out there for sure. I th you hit the nail on the head on that one. So I have covers that are going right now, which I kind of see as the home base. That's the starting point. That's what's gotten me to this point now where I'm at as an artist. And from here going forward, I'll definitely continue to do that because it brings connectivity with other artists that you cover. And to the extent you could build relationships that way, that could be beneficial going forward. So I also produce electronic dance music. That is something we haven't even crossed yet. And I have some tracks that I've used for website I'm not sure if you heard of it, called submithub.com. Yes, yes. So I've used that website, and it's proven to be very valuable because I've been able to send my dance music to labels, to blogs, to playlist curators, and there's been pretty warm reception behind that as well. So I kind of, what I'm going for is to be a concurrent artist between piano and dance music. And I think uniting the two together could be an awesome recipe for really good music going forward. Well, yeah, 
And I think the reason why, especially in dance music, it's changing where everything was so programmed for a long time, and now we're starting to see a hybrid of program versus live playing. So I think that's that's right up your alley, really. Yeah, and I recently saw Kygo play at the Barclays Center, and he started bringing live instrumentation. He had violinists on the stage, on the top where he was, he was on top of a, a pretty large circular object. He had his keyboard that he was playing the tunes to. He was hitting the drums a bit. And a lot of artists in EDM are starting to do this. Yeah, I think we're st- definitely still in the infancy stages. I think it's definitely something that is going to grow with time uh, because people, I think, may just be getting bored of the traditional turntables DJ. But I think dance music hasn't even... There's so much room for it to grow. Yeah. One of the things I noticed with dance music producers is, of course, it's very easy to put loops together and to put pre-recorded tracks together. When it comes time to record your own, that's a different level of expertise that sometimes escapes EDM producers. They've been concentrating so much on, on the loops in the box that they kind of forget about that. So when I hear some of their tracks, I go, oh, God, because they're, they're just you know not up to speed of what, yeah. what you would expect. And there's some good and there's some bad in that. The, the good part is sometimes you stumble onto something that you wouldn't otherwise bad part is if you have to compete with really good sounds then you're not going to you know i'm curious what the direction is in your dance music i have to send you a demo okay i think i need to get you some music first yeah um the direction i'm going to take is what what works i've played around with a couple different types of edm subgenres. i've produced some more pop like edm i produce some more traditional progressive house edm and i'm going to release it and kind of see what works. But the one main thing I want to keep in all of my music is the piano. Yeah. Cause that's the uniting force behind who I am as an artist. It sure. all started with the piano. So that's something that I'm going to incorporate and I'm going to see what works and release music and create some viral content behind it to really push it out there to the public. When you're doing EDM production, how long does it take you to finish a song? It really depends. Sometimes you have, I'll be playing on the piano and I'll play, couple of riffs and i'll say wow this all makes sense and you can kind of go in and picture it and it gets done in a day or two a day sometimes even you could have it mixed and then i'll work with uh an engineer to master it and other times it may take two weeks and i have one song now that's taken six months and i really am still trying to find that final piece to it Mm -hmm. that will bring it all together so it really depends but sometimes ideas just click Mm -hmm. Uh, on the piano, when I write music, sometimes it could be 15 minutes and the song is done, or it could take up to six weeks. Um, but sometimes things just click based on all your prior playing and all the music you played in the past and kind of how all the neurons are wired in your brain. When you're producing EDM, can you hear the final product in your head? Yes. that's I, I'm always big picture to start. Mm. And then I get into the details. So I start off with the bass line, the melody, and then from there, you bring in the kick drum, you bring in your FX, you bring in all your cool different sounds, how it will sound different. And what I'm really trying, starting August and going forward, is getting a lot more live instruments recorded. There's a website called soundbetter.com where you can find people anywhere in the world that can record their instruments live for you at pretty high quality. Mm-hmm. And then you can incorporate that into your mix. So violins, saxophones, trumpets, and I think all these instruments are going to become more and more prevalent, especially in dance music. Yeah. As we said earlier. I hope. That'd be more fun. 
Definitely. Going back to Morgan Stanley for a second. So what do your colleagues there think of your music career? I've received great support behind it. I think it's something that people just really understand when I start talking to them about what I'm doing and how passionate I am, that it's something that I need to do. And it's kind of my calling in life. And it's always been since the age of two. I've always dreamed of playing piano in front of large audiences. And as the rise of dance music, when I went to my first uh, dance concert at Webster Hall in New York City, I was, wow, this is so interesting. Everyone was dancing and I was analyzing what was going on on stage. And then having seen Armin, Tiesto, a lot of the main artists live, it's inspiring. And I think also seeing Ludovico Iannotti and Yanni and some of the pianists that I've always watched over time recently, it's all coming together now. I've seen everyone live and that's kind of where I'm going from there. Is this one of those things where, and let me preface this by saying the music business can be really tough and everybody kind of runs into rough patches at some point in time. Other points in time, you basically say, maybe there's a better way to do this or there's something better that I want to do. I'm just curious if, like college, where you always say, well, okay, I can drop out now, I I can always go back. It would be the same thing with something like Morgan Stanley for you? Potentially. My goal is... I'm really, really focused on music and succeeding yeah. in that. And not you don't want to burn all your ships. Uh, some people say burn all your ships and then go out for it. My thought process is definitely maintain all those good relationships. And I am very thankful for my time at Morgan Stanley. It has turned me into a very hardworking person. And I'll have some of the best friends for life that I've met there. But I'm ready to go and really focus on our music and give it 110%. And I think that with all the hard work and effort put into this and just my love for music, I think it'll work out. And to what degree, I'm not sure yet, hopefully as a performer and as an artist, but there could be different avenues. 10 years from now, that new things pop up. Spotify wasn't around when it was officially founded, but you weren't talking about Spotify and streaming royalties 10 years ago. So 10 years from now, who knows what we could be witnessing in the music industry. Yeah. Well, I'm not suggesting that you go back at all. I'm just kind of curious <laughs> whether that that's a door that's permanently closed or, or not, you know, one of those things. I always tell, especially young performers that are, are in college and they're, they have that moment, should I drop out and play? Especially if there are things going on, if there's record label interest or there's a record deal or, or something like that. And I say, you can always go back to school. You know, it's not a problem, but it might not have this opportunity again. It doesn't come around all the time. So you take the opportunity when it's there. And then if it's not there later, if there's, you know, you run into a brick wall, you can always go back. So it's one of those things. Hopefully that won't happen to you. Hopefully you'll see immediate success and, and it'll just keep on going. So you, so you like to hear. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Just out of curiosity, what's your favorite keyboard? I'm a big fan of the Yamaha DGX 660. Yeah. That, that's my favorite one. The keys feel very real. It's an affordable price. I didn't have a lot of money after college, so I said, let me find something that can fit the price point but also feel like a real piano. And I actually don't use any other ones as of right now. I'll probably start buying a couple more. Um, if you have any good suggestions, let me know. Yeah. Uh, but for now, that, that's my go-to. It's so personal. It really is. It is. And for you, the keyboard is obviously something that's really important, the feel of the keyboard. I was a Hammond player for a long time, and 
I know that if I sat down behind an organ clone that didn't have the right keys, the waterfall keys, it was like, I, I can't play this. It's not the real thing, you know? So, I mean, it really makes a big difference. I always thought, and I guess it's the same for you, especially. 100%. Do you, how do you feel, just out of curiosity again, are you married to the sound of the piano in terms of, yes, I know you have to have that feel and it's really important to you, but does the sound... Is it something that's really important to you or does it matter? Is the feel more important than the sound? That's a, that's a good question that I've actually never been asked before. And I think I, I play the piano anywhere, whether it be here, when I traveled to Greece and I found a piano, I think it's the feel. And as long as it's tuned okay, then I think it works. It's really just kind of getting the expression out and the movement of your body. And then hearing, at least in tune, the piano is what I definitely treasure. So I'd say it's really the feel. Yeah, see, I'm not saying a piano-like sound. I'm saying if there's something completely different, you know, of a very synth sound, but it felt like a piano to you. And is that more important? Because sometimes the sound dictates how you play, and you don't want that feel. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it, it, it's just a completely yeah. alien sound, so it's like, well, i got to play in an alien way to make it work. That's me. It might be different for you because right. you're, you're a you know born piano player. No, I, I agree with that. I, if there's a weird synth sound coming out of the keyboard and I'm playing it, it's not going to vibe with me well. Yeah. So I'm in agreement with you on that one. Yeah. Okay. Here's another piano-related question. How do you like the action on a piano? Do you like it stiff or do you like it loose? Stiff like a Steinway, in other words. Yeah, I, I probably prefer stiff. I think the hands get a little bit tired a bit they don't your stamina is not as long yeah but when you're hitting the notes with precision and it's a bit of a harder hit i'd have to say that i prefer that because it also shows how much effort you've put into practicing it before versus a loose piano you're you're hitting it and it feels good but the steinway really feels like a true piano and anyone that's i guess like you said stiff yeah is what i would go with do you still practice today or is your practice just in composition? I don't have as much time as I'd like you to practice now. I, I really want to get back into the Hannon exercises for finger strength as well as finger power and some other exercise that I have in my back pocket for when I'm doing this full time. Definitely to get back into, I call it the third mo Moonlight Sonata shape. Mm or you can perform the, the uh, third moonlight sonata with precision and accuracy. Uh, but really my time focus is listening to music and covering it on the piano and really just playing around with different arpeggiations, different syncopations, and really just working on training my ear to hear sounds and play them as fast and efficiently as possible on the piano. Do you find that you can almost rehearse mentally? Because I've talked to many people that said, I can visualize it and then I can do it rather than the other way around playing it and, and then kind of figuring it out. You can start. It's taken time. I'd say in the past year, I've become very good at listening to a song in my head, playing it and then going to the piano and playing it. Yeah. So it, it's crazy, but that's repetition. And that's, if you put in Robert Green said in mastery, 10,000 hours of time yeah. into something. And once you become a master of it, it's second nature to you and you can just go and do it. And I don't even think about it anymore. It's kind of, oh, these chord progressions, okay, this goes here, this goes here. I can go and play. And mm. people are like, wow, but 
they think it comes natural, but it's a lot of effort and time that you put into getting to that point in life. Sure. And there was many lunch times I sacrificed where I'd go say hi to my friends for five minutes and then the piano for 45. Some people can really do it naturally, but for me, it's been a lifetime growth process. Yeah, yeah. What's the most fun thing you do? On the piano or in life? No, musically. I'd say the most fun thing to do musically and what I enjoy, the moment I enjoy most, there's really two, is if you're DJing at a large club venue and you have the most epic build, say 24 measure, and you could tell the anticipation in the club is rising and the energy level is about to spike, and then you drop a completely different song that's still similar to the song that you're playing, mm-hmm. and the place erupts. When I was back in at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and I DJed at the Mosaic Nightclub, there was a song called How You Love Me by Three Lau, and it was mixed with Sorry by Justin Bieber. And whenever I did this this drop, everyone went crazy. Yeah. And as well as maybe there was, there was a song called Jumpman and an EDM song called Sax, which had a saxophone and a rap song combined together. And then the alternative was when I was in Mexico City performing for a graduation. It was about 3,000 people. It was a huge, the largest venue. And that was during my first year as an analyst, when you hit a drop on the piano, so you can build up like you're building up a club and you start hitting the notes harder and harder and harder and you let go and there's suspense in the air and then you hit the piano again, you strike a beautiful chord. It really touches people and it touches me as an artist. So that's probably the same thing, whether it be in a club or whether it be on the piano, building tons of anticipation, leaving a sense of suspense in the air and then dropping with an interesting chord progression or a cool melody. Last question, Nico. I usually ask this of people that are older than you and have been in the music business for a while because they've been through the slings and arrows of the business, but this is a a particular business question. That being said, for you, it's kind of different because of the environment that, that you've been in your day gig. What's the best piece of business advice that you learned or maybe somebody imparted to you? That's a good one. I would have to say being very, very focused on proofreading and being very, very into the detail before you send anything to anyone. Because a lot of musicians today, this this transfer to music, will send out emails that have typos, Mm. that have misspellings, that have inappropriate language. And that can really hurt you for the long term because let's say that I were to send you an email that was unprofessional. And all of a sudden, the person that was considering signing me had coffee with you, and they said, wow, this kid, he wrote me this unprofessional email. So I think the main thing about everything is be professional. There's no need to stir drama over Twitter or Facebook or be using social media as, a, as fighting other artists. It, just being very professional. And the greatest artists that have achieved that, I think, harp on that as well, being a professional in the industry. And that's the one piece of advice I'd say goes a long way. It's kind of vague. Be professional. What does that mean? It means taking pride in yourself, taking pride in your work, proofreading everything that you do, and really just having a fine-tooth comb and being proud of the work you're putting out. And I think that is what being professional is about. You can find out more about Nico's music on Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, and other streaming platforms by doing a search for Nico Kotoulis. Nico, N-I-K-O, Kotoulis, K-O-T-O-U-L-A-S. Nico Kotoulis.
Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.